And so once again, this is uh, just so exciting uh, just to uh, celebrate together where uh, the gates of heaven, that heaven opens up and God looks down upon and then he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Simply in obedience to what God has commanded us to do, to go and make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that God is pleased and that there's a celebration in heaven and that we all get to participate in this, that anyone who believes simply because we believe that we are forgiven and have eternal life in Christ Jesus and we have uh, this family where we celebrate uh, together. And so once again, uh, I want us to greet one another in the way that we always greet each other. Can you turn to the person next to you, give them a high five or point to them and say, we're all in this together. The reason I have to say this is to remind each other that no person is an island, but that we are a family united together in Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're continuing our series called Saved to Serve. I know that it maybe hasn't been as clear uh, in this series uh, that uh, I know that, that, uh, that in the past few weeks that when we've gone through this uh, series that the first uh, if you remember, uh, the first message that was given by Pastor Kwok is serving to save the lost, to serve to save the lost. And that the one after that that we had was to save to serve the community. And then this morning we're looking at what it means to serve the church. And so why this is important for us to understand as believers is because we're saved not just from something, but we're actually saved for something. Let me say that again. We're not simply just saved from something, but we're actually saved for something, that we're saved for a purpose. So this is really significant and important because for anyone that has ever lived in bondage or an addiction to something in their life, simply by being set free from it, a person doesn't experience freedom. Let me explain uh, what I'm talking about. Now, many in society to believe, um, and I believe for many of us here, that we have this goal to retire early, thinking that if we can retire early, that we can break free from this bondage of our corporate jobs, which enslaves us Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. But statistics show that people who actually retire earlier at 55, and they live to be 65, that it's pretty consistent that about 37% die sooner than those who retire later in life. And those who actually retire even earlier at 55 were actually shown to be most likely to die by 89% within 10 years. And so I think not just in regards to retirement, but you even look at incarceration. And the rate of incarceration is that when a person is set free from prison, that within three years, that two out of three are arrested once again. So what is the issue? What's the problem? Is it being set free from something? I think that's a big part of it, yes. But it's not just being free from something, but there's a purpose in which we need to live for, to not just be saved from something, to be, but to be saved for something. I believe a big part is because there's no purpose in life that, that many people don't have anything to live for, that when we lose that sense of purpose in life, we lose our will to live. But the thing is that when we come to believe in Jesus Christ, we come to know that we're actually created for something. 
And not just anything, but for a greater purpose. Something that has eternal value, eternal meaning. Not just something that's temporary on this earth, but has true and genuine meaning on this earth while we are alive. We know that when God sets us free from sin and death, he doesn't just give us life, but he gives us a reason to live. A real reason to live. And we're saved to serve a purpose. And that purpose is to continue the works of Jesus Christ that he began when he was on earth. Now, it's important not to get this confused. You know, we don't serve in order to get saved. And that's a misconception, I think, a lot of us, that we, in a sense, through our own works, through our efforts, we try to do all these works thinking that God will love us or accept us or forgive us if we do all of these things for him. But we don't serve in order to get saved, but we serve because we are saved. That this is really important, that positionally something has changed within us, that when we are saved, our very identity as a child of God changes from being self-serving to being selfless in serving others in the way that Jesus Christ served you and us sacrificially and unconditionally. We become like him. We serve not because we have to anymore, but because we desire, we want to, that it begins to bring joy. It brings purpose and meaning in what we do because when we serve, there is eternal value in what we do. That nothing that we do now is ever lost. That what God sees, he will reward, not just on this earth, but also eternally after we pass. Now, there's essentially three points that I want to make this morning, and I want us to see this in the text that we're looking at in Acts chapter 2. And these are the three things that we're going to see. What we're going to see in Acts chapter 2 is this, is that the love of Christ compels us. Not only does the love of Christ compel us to serve, but the Word of God commands us to serve. And third and lastly, that the Holy Spirit commissions us, empowers us, to serve, to be able to do the very thing that we ourselves cannot do. And these are the three things that we'll see over and over and over again, not just in Acts chapter 2, but from the very beginning to the very end. This is what we see in Acts chapter 2, that at Pentecost, that at Pentecost, that this is a continuation of the work that Jesus Christ began by his word and by his spirit. And it's through his disciples in which Jesus continues to do this work. And so for those of us who are not familiar maybe with the New Testament, uh, the book of Acts is actually written by Luke. So Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, which is considered to be the first part of his writings or his first volume. And then the second half is the book of Acts which is the second volume of his writings. And so the first half in the Gospel of Luke is writing about the life of Jesus Christ, and then Acts is then the continuation of that through the life of the disciples. And Luke is a medical doctor. He's a medical physician. And he's writing to someone named Theophilus, and which is actually found in both, if you look at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke and also in Acts, he writes these accounts to be able to 
write exactly what is happening during this time. That he's, in a sense, recording a historical document, documenting as a medical physician of what he's seeing and what he's hearing and corroborating with others whether or not that this is true, that this is not something that's just made up or what he's just seeing, if he's seeing things. And so he records both in Luke and Acts 2 this phenomenon of what he sees the Holy Spirit working, where the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And when they begin to speak in what he records as speaking in tongues. Now, you've heard last week from Pastor Kwok uh, what it, in a sense, means to speak in tongues. Now, I wonder what Luke is actually thinking as he's seeing this as a medical doctor. And how is this even possible that from the sky that there's, you know, thunder and lightning and there's, in a sense, these flaming tongues coming upon the disciples and they start speaking a different language and languages that they don't know. You know, I remember when I was in middle school and when I went to church and it was the first time that I've ever heard anybody speaking in tongues. You know, I was pretty freaked out. I was really scared. I didn't know what was going on. But at the same time, I was very intrigued because I've never seen anything like this. And this was something that was seriously like out of this world. And I know that there was something that was very different that was going on. And I was trying to listen to what the person next to me was saying and what the person was speaking. And the person was saying, you know, I should have been super, but I should have been super, but I And I was just like, what is he saying? I was just waiting. And then afterwards, I asked, I said, what are you saying? And then he said, you know, like, uh, I don't know. And uh, I said, then what are you doing? What is this? What is everybody doing? He's saying, like, I don't know, like, you know, I was told that this was what speaking in tongues was. And so I asked the pastor, you know, I want to also do the same thing. I want to speak in tongues. How do I do it? And he said, oh, this is how you do it, okay? Just say really fast ten times. I want, I want to, I should have bought a Subaru, but I bought a Honda. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, I should have bought a Subaru, but I bought a Honda. And then I was like, What? I was like, that's what speaking in tongues is. I was like, what is, I mean, this is, this is fake. This is phony, you know? And I was like, what? What is that? Like, that's all you're supposed to do. That, that's what it is? And then, you know, out of nowhere, um, I remember our children's pastor coming up to me. And then she put her hand on me. And then she started praying for me. And it was very different from what everybody else was saying. That it wasn't something that was repeated, the same thing over and over again. But it was a clear, distinct language I could hear her pray, a language that I've never heard before. And as she was praying and speaking clearly in sentences this language that I could tell that wasn't something that was just repetitious by memory, she started to then interpret what she was saying. And there's things that she was saying to me as she was praying, and then she stopped, and then she interpreted, and she prayed, and she stopped, she interpreted. She was saying things that were in my heart that I didn't share with anybody, deep within what I was struggling and wrestling with. And I remember as she was saying that, I broke down and I cried. And at that moment, realizing that, wow, that God is real, that God knows my hurts and my pains and what I am experiencing and what I'm going through. And that God was using her to speak to me. And this, in a sense, I believe, what we see in the New Testament here 
is that there's two distinctly different types of tongues, if you read in the New Testament, that are spoken. One is called heavenly tongues, and the other is earthly tongues. Heavenly tongues meaning that a language that is spoken that is a heavenly language that possibly is a language that is understood by God and is spoken by angels, that we on earth are able in a sense that when we have the gift of speaking in tongues are able to speak a heavenly language. And we see this also present in the New Testament. You also see what we hear in Pentecost more explicitly and distinctly that there's earthly tongues where people don't know foreign languages but yet they're able to speak suddenly through the gift of earthly tongues, whether it's Mandarin, Korean, or any other language, Spanish, that you don't know, but suddenly you have this gift of being able to pray and to speak in this earthly tongue. But specifically, once again, in Acts chapter 2, we're not sure whether or not they're speaking in heavenly tongues is possible, but what we see in the text is that explicitly that they're speaking in earthly tongues. It's possible that they're speaking in heavenly tongues, but what we see clearly, specifically in the text, is that there's earthly tongues that are being spoken. And why is it that Luke records this specifically, that it gains his attention at Pentecost? So what's happening here? Actually, what's happening at Pentecost is a tale of two mountains. So the tale of two mountains is this, is, is that when we think about Pentecost, the only thought that comes to our mind is Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. But Pentecost actually happens long before that. Pentecost actually begins in the Old Testament uh, during the time of Exodus. So what happens during the time of Exodus is, is that the Israelites are enslaved by the Egyptians, and yet God uses Moses to set his people free. And after they're set free from slavery they celebrate what they call the Passover feast of the passing over the angel of death, which was supposed to kill all the firstborn. That angel of death passes over because of the blood of a lamb that is painted on the doorsteps of the doorpost in front of their home. And so they celebrate this. And after the Passover feast, what happens is 40 days later, as they are leaving Egypt, they enter into Mount Sinai. And after 40 days at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain for 10 days where God's presence comes upon the mountain with thunder and lightning and actually fire. The people of God hear God's voice. They hear his voice. And for 10 days, Moses then receives the word of God written on tablets, the Ten Commandments and the Torah, which he then brings down in 50 days. That's why it's called Pentecost. The literal meaning of the word Pentecost is 50. And so what we see is, is that, you know, taking from uh, the words of Christina Perry, that we see what happens is that God, that over a thousand years ago, he waits until the day when Jesus comes to finally give us his word that is no longer written in stone or a piece of paper. But for a thousand years, because he loves us, he sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who now comes as a Passover lamb, gives his life, dies on the cross for our sins, 
He becomes that Passover lamb where now whoever believes in Jesus Christ, that his blood is written on the doorpost of our hearts. So when the angel of death comes for us, it passes us over. And so now what happens is, is that Jesus, after he is dead and he is resurrected from the dead, he spends the next 40 days with the disciples, eating with them, teaching them, living with them. For 40 days, he's walking with them, living with them. And then after 40 days, he goes to the Mount of Olives. For 10 days, he goes to the mountain, just like Moses, where after, in a sense, after the 40 days, Jesus then actually goes up and has ascended into heaven. Then, sorry, then 10 days later, what happens is that the disciples wait. They wait for 10 days. Then after 10 days, Pentecost happens, and the Holy Spirit comes just like in Exodus, with thunder, with lightning, with fire, tongues of fire, that the people of God hear the word of God. And no longer then is the word of God just come written in stone and not just come in the flesh in Christ Jesus, but now the word of God has come in spirit where now the word of God through the spirit is written on our hearts that the word of God lives in and through us, that the word of God is imprinted in us, that you and I, that we are the living word of God. And that is what we see is celebrated and what we believe happens at Pentecost. Sorry, the whole reason I threw that whole uh, thousand years thing is just because uh, what this, I think this whole wedding season has uh, just been the thing that's just been on my mind. And that song has just been playing over and over and over again. But see, the word of God, we see that God commands us to serve one another. And this is what we see happen is that the speaking of tongues of different languages and of different nations, that over 15 different languages were represented on that day of Pentecost, was to actually reveal what God was doing. That originally, in the time of Exodus, when the word of God came, it was specifically for the Jews and the Israelites. But now, the word of God that has come upon his people is not only for the Jews and for the Israelites, but it's for everyone who believes and we learned this last week once again that after having received the Holy Spirit, what would happen is that the disciples would be mocked. That there's people there at Pentecost hearing this, seeing this, and then they're starting to make fun of the disciples saying that they're drunk. And now as they're getting persecuted, what will the disciples do? Will they run away in fear? Will they hide Will they deny and say, no, like, um, I, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, you're right. You know, I was drunk. It's amazing to see what actually happens, that as they're being mocked and made fun of, the very person who actually denies Jesus three times, we see he actually stands up. And this is what we see in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And this is what we see. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. You see, Peter, now instead of running away in fear, he stands up boldly and proclaims 
that it's actually early in the morning. It's like about 9 a.m. in the morning. And saying that there's no way that these people are drunk, that we're drunk. And then immediately what happens is he gives a prophetic word from the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. And this is what he quotes. And he says that this was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And that's important when he says the word prophesy. Can we all say the word prophesy? And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Can we all say that one more time? Prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now prophecy or prophesying has multiple meanings. But in essence, at its very basic understanding, prophesy means to speak the word of God. And so this is what Peter is doing. He is prophesying that he is being obedient to the word of God by speaking the word of God. That after believing and receiving not only this commission and being empowered by the Spirit, but the love of Christ that compels them, he's being obedient to the commands of Jesus, his words, as he is speaking these prophetic words, he is revealing this prophecy in the past. And not just in the past, but that this prophecy is being fulfilled in the present as he proclaims, as he speaks. But it's also pointing to the future. When you and I would be prophesying the words of God and speaking this truth, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter is saying that everyone, everyone who believes that God will pour his spirit and will baptize them with the spirit and now will be able to begin to open up their lips and their mouths to speak the word of God, to prophesy. And not just prophesy, but Peter says in verse 21 once again that people will begin to call upon the name of the Lord when we begin to open up our lips to prophesy that others will begin to open up their lips to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and be saved. It's not through our works or our gifts, not through our ethnicity or nationality that God chooses to love us and to save us but it's ultimately by his son, by his word, and by his spirit that we are saved. And this is what we see Peter is proclaiming as he goes on to then, because of time, he goes on that we are not able to uh, go through all of it. But if you look down and you see in this passage that Peter goes on to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and the history of what has happened and that how Jesus Christ has paid for the sins of this world, and it is you and I who has crucified and killed Jesus, that Jesus had to die on the cross because of our sins. Whether or not we were there at that time, 
Whether or not we were there mocking Jesus or actually putting him on the cross, it doesn't matter because Jesus died because of our sins. And therefore, because of our sins, he was crucified. It was us who put him on that cross. But as they hear this message, we see in verse 37, as we take a look at verse 37, it says, when they heard this, it says, they were cut to the hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And then Peter says to them, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That it's for everybody, for everyone, not just for one type of people or one group of people, but it's for everyone. Now, when theologians or scholars studied this sermon that Peter gives, uh, they would actually, uh, in a sense, grade it in the way that, uh, you know, seminary students, when they would go to Bible college or they would go to seminary and they would have to practice in giving sermons and the professor would grade it according to certain criteria. That these professors, in a sense, they also looked at Peter's sermon and they gave it a grade. And guess what grade they gave Peter in his sermon here? Pretty bad grade. They said that this would possibly not even be passing, that it barely passes, that a lot of professors... Uh, say that this is actually one of the worst sermons or presentations of the gospel. And how could this be? Right? This is Peter. This is the New Testament. This is the Word of God. I think what's very striking here is, is, is that when the people of God hear this message that today in the wisdom of man that we say this is a terrible sermon, and yet the people were cut to the hearts. They repent of their sins. They turn away and they turn to Christ. Why? It's not because the eloquence of Peter's words. It's not because of his clever analogies or illustrations that draw people to God. But it's because the power of the Holy Spirit. That Peter, when he proclaimed, when he spoke, when he prophesied, that there was power, the Pentecostal power that he had received through the compelling love of Jesus Christ by being obedient to, com to the commands to speak the word of God. And as he received and was commissioned and empowered by the Holy Spirit, and as he spoke, that people were cut to the hearts because Peter experienced on that day, the power of the Holy Spirit. My brothers and sisters, when we believe we receive this same Pentecostal power in our lives, but it's a question of whether or not we choose to exercise this power that God has given to each and every single one of us. I think so many times we pray and we ask, and which is good, and we need to, that that's how the Spirit empowers us and stirs our hearts and moves us. But what we need to understand is, is that Christ has already baptized us through the power of the Spirit. And we already have that. Do you believe that? My brothers and sisters in Christ, that we need to proclaim it. Can you turn to the person next to you and say, prophesy.
But brothers and sisters, we need to prophesy. You know, about uh, 15 uh, years ago, uh, there was uh, this breaking story, a heartbreaking story. Um, and it's very relevant to us today as we see this happening throughout uh, just our nation. 15 year, years ago, um, in I believe about October, uh, there was an Amish community uh, of West Nichols Mines in Pennsylvania. And some of you may remember this story, but there was a troubled man who was 32 years old named Charles Roberts IV. And what happened was is, is that he was very angry. He was angry at life and he was angry at God that even though he was married and he had children of his own, he was just so upset with everything that was going on in this world and he decided to enter into this schoolhouse filled with children. What he would do is he would order the boys in the school to leave. Remaining in this classroom would be 11 girls from ages 6 through 13, and then he would tie them up, their hands and their feet. He would then, one by one, point a gun to their heads and shoot them execution style. Five of them would die immediately as the six others would fight for their lives. And Charles Roberts IV would refuse to go into custody as the police would come, and eventually he would point the gun to his own head, and he would take his own life. And when the word of this came out to the rest of the world that these girls who were still trying to fight for their lives at the hospital, that they didn't have insurance, the world reacted. They gathered together and gave donations above $4.3 million. And you got to imagine, this is 15 years ago. And then when they had received this money, the elders of the community gathered together and were trying to think of how they would disperse this money. And as they were discussing, one of the elders in this God-fearing community raised a question and said, you know, what about the widow of Charles Roberts IV and his children? What about them? Immediately, without any hesitation, the elders made a decision. They decided to walk to the home of Charles Roberts IV. And at the home of Charles Roberts IV, there were all these reporters, and the elders of the Amish community were there. And then they said they wanted to speak with the wife of Charles Roberts IV. And they told her that they forgive her. Not only do they forgive her, but they gave her a million dollars. And when a reporter heard this and he saw what was happening, he started screaming, yelling, how can you do this? How can you give that money to this family that murdered your kids, your children? How can you do that? Aren't you upset? Aren't you angry? How can you do that? That they don't deserve this. That they don't deserve this grace. And then one of the elders looked to the reporter and said, you ask us how we can do this? How can we do this? He says, how can we not? He said, we're Christians. This is what we do. And later, when the day of the funeral arrived, 
the family of Charles Roberts IV was shocked to see the Amish community come out to the funeral despite they themselves being in grief for the loss of their own, they came to show support for this family who've also experienced pain and needed healing and to experience the forgiveness of God. And a fire department chaplain who was there, Bruce Porter, describes this moving moment and this gesture. And he said when he saw that, he broke down on his knees and he started crying. He says, I can't believe this, that the love and the forgiveness that, that this community showed to this family, it's unbelievable. It's out of this world. My brothers and sisters, in a world that's so broken, in a world that is hurting and that has need of healing, that it's only through the love of Jesus Christ and the word of God that commands us to love one another, to serve one another, that it's only through the power of his spirit that commissions us and empowers us to do this that the world is able to experience healing and the forgiveness of sins, to change what is evil in this world to what is good. It's only through the Pentecostal power that Peter experiences and that God has given to each and every one of us only if we were to express and to use and to prophesy to one another and to serve one another in the way that Christ served us. This is what we see that happen in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So afterwards, those who received his words were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, why this is so significant is if you know what happens over 1,000 years ago in Exodus when the word of God came written in stone, that law was actually condemning. It was God's judgment that those who did not believe experience judgment punishment, and death. That on that day there was a choice that was given to the Israelites to choose God or to reject God. And on that day of Pentecost over a thousand years ago, when the word of God first came, do you know how many died? If you read Exodus chapter 31 and 32, after Moses comes down from that mountain, what happens is that the Israelites, rather than wait and choose God, they choose to build an idol made of gold to seek after worldly and earthly desires. They choose this world and they don't choose God. They choose the world and not the word of God. And as a result, 3,000 died. 3,000 people died. But now, over 1,000 years later, we see the word comes to life through the Spirit that no longer condemns because we're already condemned. But the Word of God now comes through the gift of the Spirit in and through us to proclaim this good news of Jesus Christ. And we see that when Paul, Peter prophesies that 3,000 are not 
dead, but 3,000 are now saved. And then we see in verses 42 through 44 that the people then begin to devote themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then awe, and the word awe here is also a fear came upon every soul. That a fear of the Lord is the beginning of all understanding, of all wisdom. Of fearing God and not fearing what other people think. And fearing man. But speaking the word of God. To have a fear of God rather than what other people think. And as a result, there are many wonders and signs that were being done. Because people did not live in fear. And they believed and they were all together and had all things in common. Not that they had everything in common, but the things that were important, that were essential, that that's what brought them together to be united as one. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the word of God that brought them together. Not their differences, but the things they had in common. And as a result, in verse 45, they sold all their possessions, their belongings to distribute, to give to those who were in need. And so nobody was in need because as a body in Christ, they served and they loved and they provided for one another's needs. And then day after day, they went to the temple together and having fellowship in the breaking of bread in their homes, they received their food and gave with generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so my brothers and sisters, this morning, this is the charge that I want to give to us. That we're saved to serve. That we're not just saved from our sins and from death. We're not just saved from something, but we're saved for something. And we're created to serve. And when we serve, it's different from the way that the world serves. That when we receive the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit empowers us to serve in a way that is different. That when others see us, that it's not just doing things that we weren't able to do before but that there's something that is infused and empowered that as we do it, people come to see the power of the living God and Jesus Christ, no matter how small it may be and no matter what we do and how we serve, that people will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord when we serve. I'm going to end with the story, in a sense, or this writing by a Christian author by the name of Max Lucado. And he talks about on the day of Pentecost, uh, something miraculous that is happening is, is, is that you see Gentiles, men and women worshiping together, slaves and masters, all alike, that all of their differences didn't matter anymore, that they came together because what unified them was the love of Jesus Christ, the word of God, and the Holy Spirit. And then people of all different backgrounds, of cultures, of political beliefs, of different ethnicities, all came together, united as one. And he raises this question and he says, is that possible to today for us to have the same type of Pentecostal power and that experience where we would not be divided, but that we would be united together as one despite our differences and he says that the early church was able to do this 
without the help of sanctuaries, of church buildings, of clergy, or seminarians, that they did it with the simplest of tools. And you know what that tool is? It was their homes. You see, not everyone can serve maybe on a foreign land to go on missions to be a missionary or lead relief efforts or to do all of these things. But the one thing that we all can do is we can be hospitable. If you have a front door, if you have a table, if you have chairs, you have bread, and you have juice, then congratulations, each and every one of you is qualified to serve in the most ancient of ministries, the ministry of hospitality. Something holy happens around a table that will never happen here in a sanctuary where we're pressed for time. All you see is the backs of people's heads as you sit there and we look at each other's expressions and then afterwards we go home. But around a dinner or a lunch table, everyone has a voice. We take off our masks. We're able to speak into one another's lives. See, hospitality opens the door to the uncommon community. And so it's not an accident that the word hospitality and hospital had the same root word. It comes from the same Latin word. And both had the same meaning for healing. That just like a hospital, when we show hospitality to one another, we bring healing in one another's lives. When you open the door to someone, you are sending this message that you matter to me, that I care about you. So many people immediately after service, they just leave and they walk out. People come in and out that no one even says hi to them, that no one goes noticed. It's a tragedy. But when we invite one another and we show hospitality, we say you matter to me. And you matter to God. That God sees you just simply by speaking and saying to one another, someone you haven't spoken to or someone you even see running away that you chase after them and say, hey, hi, I just wanted to just say hi. I never met you before. Maybe we can get a meal together. Or to invite you after for lunch that we're going out with the group. Would you like to join us? What you're saying is ultimately to that person that you are worth it. You're worth my time, and you are of value. My brothers and sisters in Christ, there's, you know, many who are serving, and there's always a need that we have. And a lot of things that we do, I know, go unnoticed, but God sees and God knows. And I want to encourage us to be able to open up our lips, to open up our mouths, to be able to prophesy, to speak into one another's lives that the love of Christ will compel you. The word of God commands you. And you have already been commissioned. You have been empowered with the power of the Holy Spirit to serve one another in love.